This morning we're going to be continuing in our series of messages from the book or the gospel of Mark, if you will. If you have a Bible with you or in your phone or device and would like to turn there with us to follow along, I encourage you to do so. So Mark chapter 2, looking at the first verse is where we're going to be here in a little bit. While you're continuing to look that up, I want you to think about some of these phrases I'm about to list off. Do any of them sound familiar to you? My background would never allow me to fill in the blank. My past choices will never allow me to fill in the blank. My mistakes will hinder me from fill in the blank. I've messed up in parenting. I'll never be a good enough mom or dad. Nothing has helped my situation. Why hold out hope? This bad situation is punishment for my poor choices. I am who I am. I'm not going to change. I need fill-in-the-blanks approval to feel validated. I cannot get through this situation. I have to lie about fill-in-the-blank. I have no other choice. I can't forgive that person. I'm too busy for God or church. It's all up to me. I can only depend on myself. I'm all alone. My guess is one of those probably resonates with your life more than some of the others do. While more and more people seem to not have faith in Jesus, that does not mean that people do not have faith in something. Each and every day, each of us places faith in a variety of narratives. If we succumb to those narratives, they come to serve as the authority for our life in that particular situation. For instance, with the narrative that my background will never allow me to fill in the blank, if I believe that narrative, I'm recognizing that that narrative has an authority in my life. My faith in that narrative then determines how I function in life. If that's the case, then I may not try new opportunities, or I may try to numb myself to limit uh, because I have limited situations available to me, or I may have a despairing demeanor. Now, your situation may not be that particular narrative, but insert the narrative that you are constantly faced with. Think back to the list I just mentioned. No matter the narrative, what is constant is that everyone places faith in something. Everyone places faith in something. While we place our faith in something, regardless of our religious orientation, what we'll encounter in God's word this morning is that Jesus contrasts himself as an object of faith more authoritative than any other narrative that we'll encounter in our life. We'll encounter a paralyzed man who is given the opportunity to contrast the object of his faith. Will he believe the narratives that he's been given all of his life? Or will he believe the words of Jesus? We'll also encounter how the faith of this man's friends helped him to have this opportunity with Jesus. We may place our faith in a variety of narratives, but Jesus is inviting us to place our faith in his narrative, in his story, in the story of his life and seeing life through his eyes. Let's take a look at what Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. 
And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the writers who captured your life on earth to show us more of who you are, God, and what your character is. Father, this morning, help us to see the life that you have for us, the life that you have for us in in and through your son, Jesus. Help us to see the false things that we are tempted to believe and help us to see the truth of who you are and what you say about life. We ask that you translate these words that we just heard into the everyday context and details of our life. It's by the power of your spirit through your son, Jesus, that we pray this. Amen. Unfortunately, I know a number of you have had to deal with family or friends who are consumed or have been consumed with an addiction. Whether it's in a TV show or movie or real life for some of you, many of these situations play out with friends or family of the addicted person needing to have an intervention. And their friends and family have to try to get them to see that they need to get help. In such situations, the friends or family of the addicted person are placing faith in the treatment or rehab facility on behalf of the addicted person who is unable or not in a place where they can have faith in what the treatment or rehab can provide to them. As we encounter Jesus in the town of Capernaum, he is preaching the word or proclaiming the good news about God's kingdom. In the first chapter of Mark, the word that Jesus is proclaiming is the good news of God. We know from Luke's gospel account that this good news was a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would proclaim. In Luke 4, verses 18 through 19, we see that Jesus declares about himself that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You can also look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah uh, talks about that. Also in Luke's gospel account, Jesus declares that he is this Messiah figure. He is the one to free the oppressed, heal the blind, and undo injustice. It's this good news and the fulfillment of it through the healings and spiritual cleansings that Jesus does that drew such a large crowd to be with Jesus in this house in Mark 2. It's in this context that Mark introduces us to four friends who are carrying a paralyzed man to meet Jesus. But they hit a snag. 
There are so many people that they cannot enter the house to get this man close enough to Jesus. So they pull a MacGyver, if you've ever seen that show, you know what I mean. And they make do with their situation, and they decide to go up onto the roof, where they will lower the paralyzed man down next to Jesus. We may be sitting here in the 21st century going like, what in the world, why would you do that? But to first century Jewish uh, readers or hearers of the story, it would make more sense. The houses had thatched roofs that were covered in mud. And historians note that many homes would have a pre-built access to the roof, as the roof would have been utilized for other purposes as well. So this move is maybe not as out of the box as we may think, but making a hole and lowering the man down was creative for that particular situation. I do think it's worth noting that as this happens in the story, Jesus' character shows something unique here. When the roof opens and the man is lowered down, Jesus' response is telling. His response is to see beyond the situation. I mean, if this was me, I would be like, what? Like, I'm doing something here. You're just interrupting me here. Like, what, what is going on? And yet Jesus in that moment recognizes the faith of the friends. He sees beyond the immediate situation. He notices that there is something deeper than a group of men vandalizing a house or pulling some kind of prank. There is something deep and profound motivating their actions here. For the four friends, Jesus is the object of their faith. They are placing their faith in Jesus that he can heal this man or at the least do more than anyone else has been able to do for him. They have faith that meeting Jesus will be good news for the paralyzed man. A number of years ago, I had a terrible stomach pain that would just not go away. And eventually, after I went to the doctor, it got traced back to an ulcer, which ultimately was a result of stress. In the modern world in which we live, we are shaped to see all facets of variety in a mechanistic way. If a building is broken, we replace the broken pieces with new ones. If a car is broken, we replace the broken parts. If a computer is broken, we replace those broken parts. If a body is broken, we replace the broken parts. While modern medical practices have aided in health, in recovery, and improving quality of life, it has also shaped us to view health and life in a very mechanistic way. If something doesn't work biologically, we swap out or bypass or add to the malfunctioning parts. This view leaves little imagination for health and life to include intangible factors as well. I mean, how do you address the intangible? When we view life as very like, well, you swap this out and you move this, like you, you can't swap out intangible things. That's hard to do. In my own situation, the factors were more than just my stomach ailment. But they were also relational, emotional, and time-oriented. And my orientation to time or in my emotions and my relationships were impacted by my belief about what was expected of me. And when I allowed that narrative to be dominant, it became the authority. And it showed in my body, in the stress. And subconsciously, I was being overwhelmed by demands. But all this is about, more than, more, about well, way more than just the way my body functions. It is way more than just about the chemical reactions in my brain. There is a power dynamic beyond the mechanistic operations of my body that were going on. As a Christian, I would say that there is a spiritual dynamic. A dynamic that involves what I believe about life. The space of my life where I express faith. 
When Jesus encounters the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, we likely pause and wonder, what does this man's moral choices have to do with his paralyzed condition? Ultimately, this passage does not really fully explain that connection. But there, is a, there are various places throughout Scripture that do point to the healing of a person in connection to their moral choices. A few weeks ago, Mike actually mentioned one of these in James chapter 5, where it says in verses 16 and 17, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Moral choices impacting someone's healing. There are also other places in scripture where this connection is made as well. In Psalm 41 verses 3 through 4, we see that the Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Again, we see that connection. Isaiah 57, 18 says, I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners. Meaning I have seen the way they have acted, whether that's good or bad, but I will heal them if they have gone wayward of me. Hosea 14, 4 says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Again, we see that connection. In John uh, 9, verses 1 through 3, we see, as he went along, this is, uh, Jesus here. He saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. While there appears to be a connection between illness and moral choices, even Jesus stopped short of explaining the connection in such direct dot-to-dot connections. Such as, this happened because you did this or because this person did this. In this passage in John, Jesus stopped short of doing that. While there isn't that direct of a connection, it doesn't mean there isn't a connection at all. In general, there is a sense in Scripture that our bodily health is impacted by our spiritual context. That whether we see it or not, there is more than just the mechanistic breakdown of our body that leads to sickness and illness. And we see this connection elsewhere in Scripture with the ultimate degree of illness, which is death. In Genesis 2, verse 17, we encounter with Adam and Eve, where God says, But you must not eat from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Here's a moral choice impacting a health outcome. Or the fulfillment of this in Genesis 3, verse 19, where God says, By the sweat of your brow, after they have ate of the fruit, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. Your moral choices impact your bodily uh, destiny, if you will. Or as Paul says in Romans 5, 12, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Meaning none of us are absent of this reality. Or in Romans 6.23, Paul also says, For the wages of sin is death. Again, we see that connection. What we can gather here is that the spiritual dynamic of life does impact the spiritual dynamic of life. When humanity disconnected from God, it impacted its health all the way to the point of death. And this leads us back to Mark chapter 2. When Jesus addresses the paralyzed man by telling him that his sins are forgiven, Jesus isn't sidestepping the man's condition. 
Rather, Jesus is speaking to a deeper matter than the man's lame body. Jesus is speaking to the root cause that has led to this man's paralysis. Jesus is pointing to the disconnect between humanity and God. He's not saying like this particular man did something that led to this, but he's saying like this is because of the disconnect that all people have from God. This disconnect is what initiated the decay in bodily health that this man and that we too experience today. Can we point to all the direct connections? No, we can't. But we can see the root cause, which is disconnect from relationship with God. And forgiveness is what reconciles that disconnect. For the paralyzed man, forgiveness leads to lasting healing. Not just temporary healing, but lasting eternal healing by being reconnected to the God of the universe. A few years ago, when I took a group of students to an event in Cincinnati, in the Cincinnati area, we got food at a restaurant one night, and as we were there, I looked over the menu and noticed wings and thought, mm, that sounds good. But to my disappointment, they weren't what I was expecting, because I'd become used to wings here. And any other wing is just not the same, as you all know. So in my eagerness to get wings, I settled for something less. Mark contrasts Jesus' response of forgiveness to this paralyzed man with the religious leader's response of criticism to what Jesus did. The religious leaders were critical of Jesus' authority to forgive sins. They accused Jesus of blasphemy, doing something other than what only God can do. The religious leaders placed their faith in the Jewish law and were holding tightly to that authority. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're not exactly wrong here, are they? But the issue is that they are assuming that Jesus isn't God. And therefore, he cannot forgive sins. They simply see it as, he's simply saying that this man is forgiven and hoping the man and others will just believe him. I mean, who, if someone says you're forgiven, like, how are you supposed to validate that? Like, okay, <laughs> what authority do you have to do that? Like, how can you show me that? But as this is happening, Jesus simultaneously reads their hearts, showing that he is not just some guy offering another person forgiveness. Rather, he is someone greater. He is God. And he is demonstrating that by his ability to read their heart's criticism before they even speak it out loud. To all this, Jesus responds with the question, which is easier, to tell a paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven or to make a paralyzed man walk again? The easier is to just say your sins are forgiven because who, who's going to check up on if that's validated? There's no way to validate that, right? But Jewish law already had a way to discern the truth of what a prophet was saying. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18.22, it says, If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. So they're applying this very thing to Jesus, but Jesus is also applying the same thing to himself. Remember, there is a spiritual connection to the paralyzed man's condition. And in Jewish culture, this is recognized all the more than it would be in our day. They saw that connection a lot more clear than we do. For Jesus to heal the paralyzed man was a fulfillment of his proclamation that the man's sins were forgiven. In healing the man, Jesus is, in, in their worldview, they're seeing, oh, this man got healed. So, oh, maybe this Jesus guy does have this authority because he just undid what we think caused it. In healing the man, Jesus is reconciling the consequences of sin on the man's body. 
In doing so, Jesus is shown to be a true prophet like Deuteronomy 18 describes. This is part of the amazement that everyone in that crowd experienced in that moment. Jesus truly was different. He wasn't just a prophet. He was God in the flesh. Jesus has authority over life unlike any other person. While we can focus on the religious leaders in this moment, the paralyzed man is also worth considering. He too, like the religious leaders, is faced with the choice of believing Jesus or not believing him. The paralyzed man is faced with believing that Jesus can truly forgive him. Or is he just bluffing? The man could easily have placed his faith in what he already knew, in what the religious leaders were already in, in, insinuating, that nothing had ever changed with his condition, that this is a result of something I probably did or someone else did, and it's my cross to bear in life. Just nothing's going to change. He could have easily believed that narrative, and that narrative was there for him to believe. He could be thinking, why would this man Jesus be able to do anything different? The man is pl faced with placing his faith in the authority of his past experience, or will he place it now in Jesus and the authority that he has? And by choosing to place his faith in the authority of Jesus, he experiences life anew. Because Jesus has the authority over the afflictions in his life. And a life-giving authority far greater than the man's past experiences. See, what this man was, was faced with was a temptation of, is he going to accept something lesser or greater? Just like I settled for wings that weren't what I was hoping they would be, this man is faced with the same decision. Am I going to accept the narrative I've always been given and just have faith that that's the way things are? Or am I going to trust and place faith in what Jesus is saying here and see where that takes me? And when he accepts what Jesus has to say, he experiences life anew. We, like the paralyzed man and his friends and the religious leaders, are faced with this same reality of where do we place our faith day in and day out? While we might mentally assent that God is the object of our faith, like if someone asks us, who, is, who do you place faith in? We might say, oh, it's God, it's Jesus. Like We can give that answer. But in what ways might you functionally place your faith in other things other than God? What narratives or lies are you believing over and above what Jesus says about your life? When we believe those narratives, we believe, when we believe those lies, we are placing our faith in a lesser authority than the life-giving authority of Jesus. We too may be like the paralyzed man and need friends around us to have faith in Jesus for us. Now, this isn't to excuse each person's individual need to believe in Jesus, but who among us encountered Jesus apart from the faith of another person? We've all needed friends who had faith in Jesus that brought us to Jesus. At times, we need others to have faith in the goodness and power of Jesus when we ourselves can't, for whatever reason, see that. Today, if you've never considered placing your faith in the life-giving authority of Jesus, I invite you to consider being immersed, placing your faith in Jesus in baptism. If that is you, we'd love to begin that journey with you and have a discussion with you about what the scriptures have to say about that further. You can come talk to me or message us at clarencecc.org and we can get that conversation started. But if you've already begun to place your faith in Jesus, how is Jesus calling you to respond to his words in Mark 2? What narratives other than Jesus are you still tempted to place your faith? 
How might Jesus be calling you to have faith in him on behalf of another who struggles to trust in Jesus? Everyone places faith in something. Everyone places faith in something. Will you place your faith each and every moment in the life-giving authority of Jesus? Will you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, thank you for being worthy of our faith and where we place it. That you aren't just another thing that we can place our faith in, but you are greater. That your authority is greater. That it leads to a life that is more fulfilling than anything that we can imagine. Father, show us where we place faith in things that are lesser than you and help us to repent, to change, to turn away from those things and place our faith in you instead and what you say is true about life and what you say is true about us. Father, show us where we need to have faith for others, whether it be family or friends or anyone that's in our life who struggle to, to place their faith in you, those who don't know you. Father, help us to have faith for them and to continue to reach out and lead them to you. It's by the power of your spirit and through your son Jesus that we pray this. Amen.